My name is Greg, and I am from Savannah. And I, I am a grateful uh, member, uh, recovering, um, of the World Water Fellowship of Al-Anon and Al-Anon. Uh, I didn't plan on speaking this morning. It was kind of one of those last-minute things, and uh, when they told me Sunday morning, I said, oh my gosh, that's even worse, you know, it's one of the spiritual things, you know, the spiritual meetings. And, you know, I am, you think I'm spiritual, but I, you know, I have that sadness, you know, so... I wore the sandals. That's the best I could do. <laughs> I do, um, I'm sorry to speak slowly, but I do talk real quick sometimes. And people have said, you know, we've really got to listen up because you talk so fast. And it's generally worse in the morning um, because I have a lot of caffeine. And, and I've had so much coffee this morning that you don't have to worry about me running over. <laughs> In fact, we may take a break. <laughs> Just a little history. I, uh, I'm 58, so you don't have to try to get these things all together. I, uh, I'm a dentist. I practice in Savannah. I, uh, I went to college and dental school in Emory in Atlanta, so I, uh, I know Atlanta from the old days when it was still Atlanta. <laughs> And I've gone to uh, school at Al- University of Texas and uh, and Auburn uh, for graduate things. And I, I kind of mark my, it's not one way I keep up with time, because I'm not real specific about time. I just remember events. <laughs> and uh, when I got out, of, uh, I, I joined the Air Force because um, it seemed like the thing to do, and they were drafting a lot of people. And uh, so the dentistry graduated the year before me, got drafted, it was during the Vietnam thing, 63, 64. And, so I ended up going to the airport, which I never intended to do. And uh, for the old-timers, you and I was married to an alcoholic for 32 years. Her name was Jolene. She really did have a name, Jolene. She was attending AA meetings trying to get sober, but the heart since 1966, and she's still trying. And uh, so, uh, but I'm no longer married to that alcoholic. I, uh, I, uh, we divorced <laughs> in uh, 19. Uh, in 95, and I, uh, I've been very hesitant. I've been actually, it was a long divorce, and so uh, it took forever, uh, because she was often not available. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I had this sponsor who used to tell me that we're always attracted to people at our own level of emotional development, which is a frightening thing for me, uh, because I was never real certain. And uh, so I was... Uh, Actually, we've been kind of dating off and on, breaking up, getting back together, breaking up. But I had really cold feet, and she did also, but we found inside we couldn't break up anymore, so I actually married uh, an Al-Anon. <laughs> <laughs> and her name is Anna, and she's sitting on the uh, front row there. If you could just stand up for a second, Anna, so that... We came to Epworth, which is where we kind of first met and got married at the little lovely Lane Chapel across the street in June by the uh, superintendent here, who's the guy who does a little benediction when he's here. I think you all probably know him. Anyway, I one thing, I, I, I guess I've been doing service work for a long time because um, I, know, I know if I volunteer to do something, then I can't quit. And I noticed that that seems to be one of the shortcomings, that it's so easy to you just quit. Um, I remember when I first came to Al-Anon, I just felt so bad I couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, I was sick. Uh, I was I knew I was going to get sicker if I didn't do something. Uh, I remember people saying at the time that I remember the first only didn't disagree with a lot of things, which is the part where you can find contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. And I thought they can't be married to my alcoholic. I remember people saying things like, I don't know what to do. He comes home, I'm fixed dinner. By the time I get dinner fixed, he's passed out. He just stays on the living room floor all morning, gets up and goes to work, and I never have a life. I don't have a husband, I have a spouse, I don't have this, whatever, you know. And I, I would look at them for them, and I thought, you're so weak. <laughs> if my alcoholic would ever pass out, I would certainly not be here. But mine was a more dynamic alcoholic. In fact, uh, she never passed out. And I, uh, I came from, uh,
background of a lot of alcoholism, like many of us did. Uh, I didn't know what it was, and it was not so active. I was raised like by adult children, and my father actually probably uh, drank alcoholically in the end of his life, and he left my mother and married an alcoholic and died of alcoholism. And, and I now find out that his grandfathers and great-grandfathers were, you know, alcoholics, and I didn't know about it. It just kind of comes in passing, you know, I mean. But the last time I talked to my mother, she says, well, you know, your great-grandfather stone so he was a city physician up there in this little place in uh, Delphi, Indiana, or someplace. He, said, he had a drinking problem. He said he died in bed with uh, making love to a lady, not his wife. <laughs> 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 but at any rate, um, when I, uh, I uh, don't remember much. I, had a, I think I grew up in a nice home, really. It was kind of rigid, you know, and I don't remember things the way my... I supposed to tell you what it was like what happened and what it's like now. And none of those things am I certain about. Because I remember, I talked to my siblings, and we don't remember growing up the same way. So I, I'm sure that I don't remember things the way they really happened. And I think that's a blessing. A lot of people think that I can't remember things. You, know, cause you just can't remember anything. And they act like it's a shortcoming. And I've always considered it a blessing. <laughs> but I... Um, I never drank or smoked or did any of those things until I went off to college and, uh, you know, and I started, uh, we drank beer. We certainly joined a fraternity because that's what we did and, you know, you drank beer because that's what they did. And I remember thinking that I, I, I probably drank more than I should even and, uh, you know, and I remember studying and, and we, my friends, we'd study in the bar, Atkins Park or Manuals or someplace in Atlanta. And, but I always did very, very well in school. Uh, I went to dental, pre-dental, went to Emory's pre-dental. At the end of the, the, end of, end of the first year, I was top of my class, and so my counselor, my, my, my uh, the guy, counselor, whatever, you know, guy tells you what you should be doing, he says, don't you think you ought to change your mind and be a physician? I said, oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to do that, because I was already thinking. I don't want to have to have patients who really die, and I don't have to go to the hospital in the morning and night and the weekends. I like to just go, you know, just work nine to five. <laughs> And uh, it was during this time that I uh, I worked at Crawford Long Hospital for years and uh, oxygen. I was an oxygen boy. We don't call them oxygen boys anymore. I don't know what they call them. <laughs> but I, I did that, and I ran into, that's where I ran into my, my wife, Phil Lynn. She was a nursing student. She'd been at Emory, and she was at Crawford Long as a nursing student. And, uh, and I just uh, was infatuated with her from the very first. And... Uh, and uh, my friends uh, who had known her, because she'd gone to Emory at Oxford, she was one of the early admission people who went off in like we were 14. They'd known her for some years, and he said, you know, Greg, you really don't want to do this. Uh, she's not okay. You know, and I, uh, and my friends were nearly not okay, and I knew that too, you know, so I just took that in. I kind of weighed these things, and I thought, well, you know, I don't see anything wrong with her. Uh, I mean, we, she didn't drink. She didn't act funny. She was real smart. People said she was the smartest girl at Emory. She was athletic. So I didn't see what they were talking about. And I still, that's what kind of scared, but to this day I'm still not sure what they saw. <laughs> but they did, you know, and I certainly didn't see it. Which in retrospect uh, tells me a lot about myself because mm, I was certainly blind about that. And so we got, uh, like I said, we, we got married. I asked her on my second date. She said yes. We went to Ringgold, Georgia, which if you don't know what I did, this way up there where they marry people, and uh, it was. I, and I was, and we were both in school. So she was, she cut out a bacteriology lab, and I cut out a orthodontic lab. And we got in a little Volkswagen, drove up there, got married by the. You got your blood test on one side of the street, and you walked across and head. I remember this little chat, little house, and and Justice Peace didn't have any teeth. I remember that. <laughs> and. Uh, and we got married. His wife came out of the kitchen. She was cooking something. She had his apron on. He got a house dress and his old apron. And she came. She was a witness. And, and we got married. We came back. Got halfway back. Stayed at the motel with a weeping willow out front. And then I took her back to her dorm. And I went to mine. We got back to school. And we didn't get back together again until the end of the year. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I think I joined the Air Force. And I'm not sure when I started thinking things were really going wrong. But I remember um, I went to Newfoundland. I spoke pretty fluent Spanish, and I, uh, and I was uh, 
I wanted to go to Europe, and so I asked for that, and I, I asked for Germany, England, or Spain, but I got Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> and in Newfoundland, it, if you haven't been there, it's kind of like an island off the, in the Gulf Stream off the coast of Canada, where they had the heaviest uh, snowfall of any civilized part of the world. And so the very first night we had snow, was in here, I grew up in Florida, St. Petersburg, Florida, and went to been eight years in Atlanta, and they sent me to Newfoundland. The first night we had 36 inches of snow. And I woke up in the morning, it was downtown in a little fisherman's house, and, uh, and that's, where I, that's where I lived, and uh, it was dark, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong, and because and, uh, because we'd had the snow, and we had 9 mile an hour winds. When we talk about these hurricanes, they had 9 mile an hour winds, we had that all the time. That's a big thing. You know, you just had to have it rope from building to building so you wouldn't get lost. <laughs> but, uh, but that's my first, that was my first base, and Joan came up, and we had, uh, she'd been, we had two kids. Uh, I adopted one, and she had one <laughs> of ours. And, uh, and things started going really askew almost immediately. I, uh, I mean, uh, we had never had any money, because I worked at Crawford Long, and I would, uh, I was, you know, obviously a full-time student. I didn't have a lot of time, but I would, sneak out of school at 3 o'clock on Friday and go over to the hospital when I'd work straight shifts from 3 Friday until 7 o'clock Monday and then I would take a shower at the hospital and go back to the dental school which was downtown at the time 8 o'clock for class and I made 50 cents an hour before taxes <laughs> and so I worked 40 hour weekend maybe make 16, 17 dollars you know so we didn't spend a lot of money on booze and our idea of drinking was uh, get a can of beer and split it you know and then you know how you do it you, we didn't have any furniture except in this loop rug and we Split the beer, and whoever got the port, and the other, whoever poured it didn't get to choose. Whoever, the other person chose first, he made sure he got that. And so I had no idea what was I was in store for until I got my first paycheck in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force, and uh, I got actually got paid. And uh, then the drinking started right off the bat. And uh, I was in, uh, it was a SAC base back when Colonel LeMay was commander, and SAC people were really rigid, and, and the drinking got out of hand almost immediately. I remember. The, com- the wing commander was a little short guy with a real personality problem, and he had taps, you know, and he was just mean as a snake. And he went down to the office club on Friday nights, and the booze were almost nothing. Nickel was gone, I think. And uh, and she took the wing commander. He took, came up and got his drink and drank it. He reached over to take it back from him, and from her, and she slapped him. And I thought, oh my god, because <laughs> I was already in bad enough trouble, you know, and in the military, back in those days, you're responsible for your, you know, if your wife gets a scene, you go to, you go to traffic school. <laughs> so I knew I was going to Greenland or worse, and, uh, and so I had never, but it just got so out of hand. I mean, with one thing after another, after another, and these suicide attempts, and I remember in seizures, and I remember the flight surgeon walking out of the hospital with me, and he said, Greg, you know, I think she just hyperventilated. She's not having any kind of seizures. Everything got went to pieces, so I never had any desire to stay in the Air Force. I didn't go to dental school, you know, so I could stay in the Air Force. But things were so screwy that I knew something was really wrong, so I thought, okay. You know I mean, I could always be able to handle problems, and I thought, well, I can handle this. Nothing here I can't really handle. I just I can't be going, going trying to open a new practice and all that debt and everything, and two kids, and I had no money, and uh, never had any money, <laughs> still don't. <laughs> uh, but... I said, I, I just can't do that, so I'll just extend in the Air Force for a while. I, I'll stay in 18 months up here. Because I really liked it in Newfoundland. It was a beautiful place. And then and McNamara closed the base and sent me to Mississippi. I, I didn't really want to go to Mississippi. But I'd already signed a paper, so I was stuck there. And then things got even worse. He started doing things like jump off bridges. And, you know, and the hospital commander came in and said, don't you care anything about your wife? And said, why don't you do something? And I don't know what I was supposed to do, really. He didn't know what I was supposed to do either, but he decided to do something. So I was starting to think that this was, you know, something that's getting out of hand. I remember that the dental surgeon said at the time, says, Greg, I said, you're, you're the most easygoing guy. I said, I've never seen you upset. You know, and I, I think up to that point, I hardly ever got upset. I just thought, well, this is crazy, you know, but it'll stop. <laughs> and, uh, but it really didn't stop. And I, uh, I finally found a psychiatrist who was the head of the medical school, the psychiatry there in uh, Mississippi. And, I took her in to see him. He's in Gulfport. And he talked to Pilani. He got me in. He says, you know, this woman's hopeless. And she's going to die. And she's going to be dead in the next year whether we treat her or not. So I just do not. And I said, well, you do this for money, don't you? And he says, yeah. I said, well, it's my money. So I you know, want you to see her. And then they went, well, I'll accept the fact she's not going to make it. He says, okay. <laughs> well, that was a long time ago. It was 1966. 
she's still around. <laughs> but uh, things kept getting worse, and so I uh, uh, sometimes you have to get a separation. So uh, I took the best, easiest way out and gone to Vietnam. Which, uh, which happened, I was sent almost immediately uh, to Vietnam, to Da Nang, uh, and that was an interesting experience. And it was, you know, for some people thought that was a, that was a hardship. For me, it was like a vacation. I figured the worst happened, I'd get killed, that'd be a break. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't, and uh, and uh, we got ready. To, we had when when you're over there, these things like R and R, and you get two weeks off, one week for R and R, and one week for just a leave, and so, which was me in Hong Kong, oh, and in, in Australia, and uh, and she never showed up, so I was, did Australia on my own. She was she was having the hospital, uh, having some tests. She did make it to uh, Hong Kong, and uh, that's where we she got drunk and bit the end of my nose off, a big hunk off the end of my nose, and uh, and so I, I ended up in these little British hospitals, and then they had. They had Blew me out to the, the hope when I got back to Da Nang and, he, and, the, and the plastic surgeon said, we'll let it granulate in and see what happens. But I always healed pretty quick, so he didn't do anything, you know. But that was kind of, that was kind of like my R&R, &R, was getting my nose bit off. <laughs> you know, and I didn't like that. I, uh, I just, you know, I didn't like that at all. Uh, but I, but I, I didn't know what to do about it. But I still never. At that point, I still thought everything was going to be okay. I mean, I thought this is crazy, and other people don't put up with this. But, but I'm, I can handle this kind of thing. You know, I mean, you know, just don't lose your head. You just stay calm, and it'll work out okay. So I came back, and, and when I got over there, I had bought a house in uh, Winter Park, Florida, which is Orlando, when it's right before Disney World opened, and they announced Disney World. And while I was over there, they worked on Disney World, and they were opening it just after I got back. My wife had come down and I had a Newfoundland dog that weighed 200 pounds and two boys and, and then one of her girlfriends got divorced and uh, so she came down with two, two kids and a dog and a cat. And so when I got back home to get my house, which was brand new, when I left a year later, it was totally trashed and I could hardly sell it for a great loss. <laughs> I was the only person at that particular time who sold the house at a loss in Winter Park <laughs> with Disney World opening. But I was lucky to get out of there. We went to Germany. And uh, in Germany, of course, it's um, a lovely place. and. Uh, and uh, I'm glad that uh, we didn't stop drinking before we got there because I don't know what you'd do if you. <laughs> I mean, you still go wine testing things, and uh, but but things just continually, continually got worse, like you all know it does. And and, uh, and it's amazing. There's always been major hospitals, and I don't remember her ever being really diagnosed with alcoholism uh, uh, until way late, you know, way late. Uh, but she was always had something wrong. She had. Uh, lupus or seizures or this or that, and everybody's taking it for that and thinking we can just get rid of all these physical problems to be okay. Nobody ever said, well, you know, this doesn't happen unless when, except when she's drinking. That never really was addressed at all. And, and I didn't address it either. I had no idea. And I, that's why I really, it's amazing to me looking back on it. I just had no idea. I, I knew that the drinking was a serious problem, but, but I thought I just could explain it because I always was good at explaining things. And so I would just get her just sit her down and I think, okay, you know, when something bad would happen, I say, okay, this is surely going to be it. I'll just explain it to her one more time. And when she sees the, the reason here, my reason, she's going to quit drinking. And, uh, but it didn't, it didn't happen that way. And, uh, and after that, it's all kind of a blur. I went back to residency and I don't remember much what happened because we weren't, we were, in, we, it was just not a civilian, this is military. And in the military, you go seven days a week, ten hours a day. And so I went to the University of Texas for a year and I, and I took all the courses I had in the graduate school, and then I went to San Antonio for a year for the clinical part. And I know she was several hospitalizations. It's all a blur to me. I don't remember because I was busy with Houston and San Antonio. And, and then she tried to kill herself when I was in San Antonio. And, but I, and I was real busy, but I had left home, and, and I, I noticed, you know, I said goodbye and kind of gave her a kiss, but I noticed she was kind of non-responsive, and so I... I drove down around San Antonio, side of San Antonio, and I was sitting in the middle of class. I thought, you know, that's really strange. So I got up and went back home again. She was unconscious, so I took her in, and she was in a coma for 17 days. And they told me finally just go on home, and they, t and they said she's not going to make it, so just go on home, and and uh, we'll call you when it's over. You can come on over and do what you need to do. So I did that, and uh, of course my wife, Jolene, 
My ex-wife, Bill Lynn, was uh, half Irish and half Welsh. And, and you really can't kill them that easily. <laughs> so we had like a formal military ball two weeks later, and she was actually in Canadian with me. <laughs> she went from being all swolled up and like black to being really uh, kind of lost a lot of that baby fat stuff. You know, she looked real good. <laughs> But, uh, and they said, well, you know, and I had volunteered for the Philippines, because it looked on the map like a great place to travel from, and not, but it looked like it. And, uh, and they told me, said, Greg, well, you know, you're going 10,000 miles away to this faraway place, you know, and if you want to, we'll just get you out of this, because you don't need to do this with this problem, this personal problem you got. And I said, oh, it's not a problem, you know. I said, she's either going to drink or not, and wherever it is, going to be the same thing, and I'm going to go to the Philippines. So they sent me to the Philippines. And, of course, the beauty of that was that in the Philippines, I had a house girl and a houseboy did everything. You know, I mean, the houseboy would clean up everything. And once a week, he'd take all the furniture outside and put it in the yard and, and mop everything. And he'd wax my Toyota Land Cruiser. He'd even get underneath and wax the axles and stuff and polish my shoes. And the house girl did all the cooking and cleaning inside during the week. And I never had to do anything. So I spent most of the time at the hospital. Going at 6 o'clock in the morning, come back at 6 o'clock at night eat dinner, and they said it was really rigid about that. I don't remember, but I'm sure they're right. Said at 6 o'clock, and everybody was just trembling because I walked in the door at 6, and I had to eat side thin. And I did one minute after 6, I was in hysterical fit, and then I'd eat and go back to the hospital and work some more. And uh, she ended up in the hospital. They locked her up. The hospital commander there um, really was a good friend of mine, but, um, but I came back to the States for a meeting. And when I came back, uh, old Bill was in the hospital. I had this, like, quantity up, you know. They just locked her up there, and... They kept it there for six months. <laughs> uh, it's not like the States, you know, in the military, you, they can do anything you want to, to you. So, lock her up, and then they sign, find this after six months uh, that they, she, she should go to treatment for alcoholism. So I had to try call back to the States, because we, I don't know what, we, we didn't like, know anything over there. Nobody knew anything about treatment or where the treatment centers were. So I was calling back, you know. I had to get to 11 or 12 o'clock at night to call back here and try to find, I didn't know anything about treatment centers, I was trying to find where you send somebody with this kind of problem. They finally sent her back, <clears throat> and that was her first experience with the treatment of alcoholism. She was back there for like six, six weeks, and then they flew her back um, to the Philippines. She always had really incredible luck about that kind of thing, too. She got stuck in California. But during our time in uh, Germany, our neighbor was the head of military airlift command, and so he found out she was stuck in uh, California, so he unloaded an airplane, diverted it to the Philippines, and flew, we flew her on the 131 from California to the Philippines, personal service. <laughs> Back to that $600 toilet seat. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when I first started going to Al-Anon. I, I, and I, and I, you know, I don't know where we get this thing about come six meetings and, uh, before you make a decision. Well, I went for a year. We didn't, I have to admit, we didn't have very good meetings and there were not very few, you know. But I did all the steps and I did all that stuff, I thought. And I thought I really had a grip on this program. I realized in retrospect that I never had any kind of a surrender at all. I mean, I was just tossed, you know, just one more thing. I never expected this to be a long-term thing. And, I was just trying to do what I had to do to help, you know, this poor, pitiful, unfortunate person, you know. So that meant I had to go with these. And they were nice people. They were. And I didn't mind going. And, uh, but I moved back to the States and I quit. And, uh, then the drinking started again and it was about a year or so before I got back. And I'll tell you, two years maybe even. And, and that never even occurred to me when the drinking started to go back to Al-Anon because I'd already tried that. I don't know if anybody else, but you know, I'd try everything and, and I, you know, and I'd already tried that and it wouldn't work. And, but, but this time I really started getting sick. By this time I, you know, I'm a dentist and I like to fiddle with my hands and I was having arthritis. I couldn't move my fingers in the morning and I had an ulcer and had these little things and I thought, oh shit, I know what this is. And I went to the dentist biopsy and immunosuppressant and Sam said, Greg, you got temperatures, you know, and, uh, Says, you know, you're doing it for yourself, and it says, you know, if it gets worse, we'll have to treat you, but, you know, the treatment's going to kill you, and the disease is going to kill you. And so when I got to Al-Anon, I was, uh, for the very first time, we talked about alcoholics, you know, getting, never, never maturing after they stopped drinking. Well, I was thinking at the time, 
I was always thought I was very mature because I was very responsible. I, I had somehow, unbeknownst, I don't even exactly understand it because in the military they're really rigid about certain things. One is you can drink all you want to, but you can't get drunk. You, know, you can't. You're not going to not going to embarrass anybody. And of course, if your spouse drinks, well, that's the same thing as you drinking. So you're out. Also, I'd never gotten around this. In the military, you can be a regular officer. I'm sure you've been there. Some of you can be career reserve. You can be career reserve. And I never bothered to become a regular officer. And so here I was, here I was married, married to a really obnoxious public drunk where the wing commander's secretary was calling me almost on a weekly basis telling me I needed to do something. I was career reserve, and somehow I managed to get promoted as the youngest full colonel in the Air Force, <laughs> which only a few weeks before that, the head of dental promotions come by and said, Greg, you know, if you're never going to make full colonel, you pissed off so many people. <laughs> but I guess I treated all the generals, and I was at the right place at the right time. But, um, any rate, I, uh, I started going back to Al-Anon, and this time, I, uh, you know, I, I know the difference between submission and surrender, because this time, I had really given up. We talked about, like I say, we talked about alcoholics not maturing after they start drinking, but I started thinking back, and then I thought, you know, I wonder if you live in somebody, because I basically was so obsessed with the alcoholic that I was living her life for years. And I thought, well, if you can't really get mature if you're living somebody else's life, I'm thinking that's probably true. And so I, I remember one time we had a meeting and I did a little thing on out of maturity, and I just had to start laughing. Uh, same thing I did when we got married over here, and I, it was really embarrassing to, uh, to the preacher and to Anna, because, uh, you know, you get married when you're young and you don't know what you're doing, and that's fair enough. And... Um, but the second time around, you know, I got to that point for, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health, you know. And I started laughing. I mean, I started laughing hysterically. And like, I, I knew this is a really solemn thing, and I've got to stop this. But I just couldn't. <laughs> and and, and so I thought he was going to just quit and not marry us. And I <laughs> but I, every time he'd say something, I'd say, oh, my God, I know what, you know, I know both ends of this extreme, you know. And I thought, <laughs> anyway. Uh, this time when I went back to Al-Anon, uh, I was, had given up. And, and over the years, some of the things that happened, and I just remember these things, and I, you know, I've, I've told them before, and I, but I, the, the, the things that I remember, because I remember always being, like, positive and, and always saying them, and, 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 and bless her heart, she uh, was always trying to commit suicide, and she was often very near successful, and, you know, she'd stop, but I'd get her to the hospital, or I'm, you know, we'd somehow revive her. She'd stop breathing. Her heart stopped. And she'd be like, how many revived her? You know, four or five times this woman's died and been revived. And it occurred to me not too long ago, I'm probably the only person in Savannah who's paying alimony and somebody's died five times. <laughs> but I remember, uh, I remember once, uh, we always, I keep taking it, go in, Ended up with, uh, not kind of the year at Willingway, which we ended up a couple of years ago, which unfortunately not successful, uh, had spent over 400 hours in 28-day programs. 400 days in 28-day programs, uh, not counting all the psychiatric hospitals and everything. So, and over the time, I started getting discouraged. After a while, you get discouraged, you know, and all your money is going to the same thing and keeps coming back. and. I remember one time I said, you know, my son and I were there. One, I had two sons. One got away. Uh, we came back from the Philippines. And he said, well, I'd go down and see grandmother, you know, for the summer. And so I said, that's fine. You know, that's okay. So at the end of the summer, he called back and says, Dad, I'd like to go to, I'd like to finish high school where you did. And just see such good memories and everything. I knew what he was up to. He wasn't coming back. So I, I, the second son, Michael, I held on to him. Because <laughs> I needed help to deal with this lady. And uh, <laughs> I did because she was like I said she never would go to sleep. So she would and she was and and she wouldn't just sit around like a wallflower, you know, like a potted plant and just drink and look bad. She'd be up and out and around and and the booze was every place and I was always looking for it. And uh, we said one time we said she was just drunk and she wanted to get some help and and uh, I, I said, well, Mike, you know, I said. Um, I said, only we take it to these detox places. I said, we can detox her right here. We're just putting it. I mean, this is an old house in Savannah. It's a lot of wasted space. And these little, little court hallways and foyers and all these stupid things. And so we got the doorknobs off the inside, had the walls, and put her in there and locked her up, put food in there. And <laughs> I thought, well, this is going to save me 2500 bucks, you know. And 
And I got, we finally took her out, took her to the detox place that had holes in the walls and doors and everything else. And I, and I said, well, that didn't work. That's one more thing that didn't work. And, um, and she would never let me sleep. This is an important thing, I think, because she would never let me sleep. So I had to be at work at 7 o'clock. I had to get up at 5.30. And, and, uh, and so the, the boys would say, says, Dad, I know what's wrong. He says, we come home from school about 2. And uh, Mom's okay. Mom's okay. And then uh, by the time you get home at 4.30, 5 o'clock, she says, she's always drunk. And then she, so she, what would happen was she, she'd get past that about 4.30, I'd get up at 5.30. I'd go to work. She'd sleep. She'd get up. She'd get drunk. I'd come home. And then I couldn't sleep. And if I tried to go to sleep, she'd come in and pound on me and say, you're not going to sleep, you miserable son of a bitch. Not when I'm awake. <laughs> so she'd whack on me. So I remember one time I locked the door. I said, okay, I can't take this anymore. I locked the door, and I put some wedges against it. And, uh, and uh, I went to sleep. And she was pounding the door, pounding the door, and pounding the door. And I just kind of smirking because I think she can't get in. Because this was an old house that wouldn't have these hollow doors. It had solid wood doors, you know, the kind of you really, a drunk woman can't get through. And, um, and then I heard this strange, strange noise, kind of like, I couldn't figure out what it was. And of course, we had had, uh, she's, we were both, uh, we both have a, a materialist. We're both materialists. We always bought stuff. We had like 12 dozen waterproof goblets of various sorts, you know, a dozen of everything they make. And so she was in there just throwing them against the wall. She basically, basically went through all of them before I went in to see what it was. And the dining room, it is beautiful, with, with millions of crystal pieces of crystal all over the floor. And the glass, the light's glistening up through that, you know. But it's, that's just kind of an expense that you don't need. <laughs> but she made amends, because uh, the next day she sobered up and replaced them all. <laughs> she had a bad habit of driving. She didn't used to drive. And um, when she was drinking, but I guess it's a progressive disease, and eventually she started driving. And I knew this was a serious thing because I knew there was a lot of liability here for me, and I and, and I, I I had to do something. And I, of course, not having a car was never one of the options. I mean, it, it would occur to me that if you can't stop drinking and you're driving and drinking, you probably don't have shouldn't have a car. But I never that was never an option. I had promised to get her a Porsche when we were in dental school, and, and uh, so I bought her a Porsche. And uh, she started driving her back and forth to Atlanta to see her sister. And I remember her sister lived up in Marietta, and she left at 180 miles. And, to, uh, and, and she called. She left. She called a little over two hours after she left. And I thought, my God, you've had an accident. What's wrong? She says, I'm okay. I'm at Cheryl. But my God, she's gone over 200 miles in a little over two hours. And that's including going through Atlanta. So I said, you know, Joan, you can't do this. You know, you're going to get, you're going to kill yourself and somebody else. You can't be driving that kind of speed. You know, you're driving 130 miles an hour all the way to Atlanta. And, uh, Said so you gotta slow down, but I started worrying about it. I'm obsessed about it, so I thought, okay, I can't. I I, I want to hurt her feelings because she's very sensitive. And uh, and so I thought, what should I do? So I bought her a diesel Mercedes. I paid the Porsche in a diesel Mercedes because it was much slower and and more protection. And uh, we lived in this beautiful little neighborhood in, Mont- in Montgomery, Alabama at the time. It was uh, old family stuff. We were the only uh, outsiders there. We didn't belong there. I don't know how we got there. Yeah, they liked us okay because we didn't care about them. If I'd been trying to make a living there, they would never talk to me, you know, but as it was, we were fine. Cause, anyway, I remember seeing her drive, and there was lots of trees, because a lot of the areas kind of stretched, you know, scraped all used to be plantations and cotton fields. This is all big trees. I remember her getting, looking out the front door and seeing her car kind of wedged between two trees in the neighbor's front yard. And so I thought, okay, this is not going to work. So I remember thinking, I was driving an old Mercury, which is just fine by me. Because it was dependable, I think, and I can't let her drive around drunk. So I took out, I opened the trunk, I took everything, I took the distributor, whole shaft, I took everything out, I took all the wires off. I said, this car's not going anyplace. So I put it back together again. I put it all that stuff on the back of my Mercury and went to work. And I came back and the car didn't move. Now, if you your car won't work, you get up and you know, you say you're not an alcoholic, and you get up and you've got a terrible hangover, you've been drinking all night, and your car is totally disabled, and you try to get it fixed, you just can't do it. But she did it. She called the Mercedes place. They sent a truck and a mechanic over. They replaced all the parts, and she drove it. So that's just another one of those things where all of a sudden I had a whole trunk full of spare Mercedes parts. I don't know. I don't remember how much that cost, but I know that it it was incredibly expensive. 
doing my taxes one time, I, I, I and I was just, I, and I was always trying to keep everything was always askew, and I was doing my taxes, and you know, you had these medical expenses and dental expenses and optical expenses, and I noticed in one year I had 23 pairs of prescription bifocal glasses, you know, because they were not lasting, they were lasting about two weeks a pair, and uh, she'd smash them up. I thought nobody buys 23 pairs of glasses, and they, and these were not the ones where you get one, you know, pay $99 for one to get a second pair of free, with the, the rubber or something that don't break. These are always like the ones in the locked case, you know, three, four hundred dollars a pair. And so, I mean, this is where I was just trying to deal with all this stuff. I remember getting audited once by the uh, IRS, and uh, and my dog really had chewed the stuff up. We had a we had a uh, emotionally unstable uh, Afghan. <laughs> And when I moved from the Philippines, everything had been pretty much damaged in the move, and all my paperwork was around there. And so I got this thing. I remember going out to the front yard, and the uh, the house that I bought had belonged to the Blunts, who was, he used to be a postmaster and had a big construction company, and they had a lot of entertainment. Everything was landscaped perfectly when I got there, but I had not bothered to take care of it. So I, it reverted back to an old Southern-style thing where you actually had dirt, and you just raked the dirt around so the snakes can't, you know, because you don't want grass because the snakes can be in it. And we had no snakes, but we had no grass either. And uh, we were treading out there, look at this thing, seeing you being audited, and I'm thinking, I can't stand this, you know. And so I, I went down to see the lady, and I don't know what I said to her, but they thought I owed him $4,000 or something. And, um, and by the time I got to talking to her, she says, why don't you just go home? <laughs> and I, I never heard from him. I didn't have, you know, I, I said the dog ate it all up, and I got a scrap of paper with spit on it, you know. And, and she just finally, I, and she must, maybe she was married to a drunk, I don't know, you know. But she just finally told me, go home, I never did hear from him again. Which does remind me that Joan called last week and said that she was going to turn me over to the IRS, report me because she knew a guy was mishandling my money, and in the meantime, she was going to kill Anna, you know, and I told Anna not to worry, she's probably not going to kill you, but she sure as hell will call the IRS. <laughs> I, remember, I remember the part that really, when I realized I was really crazy was when uh, she was up in the attic and treading around at about four in the morning. And uh, I finally couldn't stand anymore. Because, you know, I had to get up and go to work. I couldn't sleep. I heard just banging and crashing around up in the attic, you know, a big attic, big house, big attic. Went up there, and she's on this little stool, not, 12, not a foot tall, with this wire around her neck. And she had it up over a rafter. And she's 5'8", and the rafter's probably 6 feet. She was going to kill herself. And I thought you had... You're worthless, you know, you're worthless. You can't tell you, you can't live and you can't die. Says, I'm going to help you. So I said, come on over here. So we got over where the steps go down and I <laughs> set her up on the thing and there's a big rubber extension for it. I don't know where I didn't, it was left in the house. Big rubber thing about that big around. And so I, I secured it around her neck, put it up around the thing and tied it tightly and, and told her, now you have to just jump off. And that'll do it, you know. And then I, I went down and got back in bed again. I started thinking, this is that rubber. I bet that has fingerprints on it. And I didn't hear any thumps, so I come running, and I, I could, and it all flashed in my mind. I was thinking, you know, she's going to jump off there. They're going to come in. They're going to find out I did it. They're going to accuse me of killing her. And I'm going to be in try on all of these people, these friends of hers. They're going to come by and say, I don't know how I could have done it. She was such a beautiful, sweet lady. <laughs> so I ran upstairs, and I unhooked the thing and brought her back downstairs again, and and, um, and that was it. And I just went on, you know. But I thought, you know, really, that, cause, but before that, I'd always try to save her, you know. And here, gosh, I've gone from saving her to actually helping her, you know, doing this thing that she wants to do so badly. I, I was so desperate. I was just really desperate. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't. I don't know how I did that. I don't know how I stayed. In, I don't know why I didn't have a stroke or something a long, long time ago. Because I'm mean, working all day. And uh, I, I used to defend it. I'd gone off to the Hard Dixie Roundup, which is Emory. It was always a, a real nice place. $47, and that was kind of expensive. At 4 o'clock, I said, i got to get away. I'd give my credit card up to get my clothes out and I went home. So I put my heading and oh, back home again. I was looking at the hall. It's ready to center beside my own bushes. Look at <laughs> this time. 5 o'clock, going to take a shit. It's not. I knew this. So and I became so sick, and they said I was dying of alcoholism. You know, and that's crazy. I didn't drink at all. And I was dying of the disease of alcoholism, and and I knew that I was going to die before she did. The way things were going, I was going to die before she did. And I knew the way things were going, she'd never make even my funeral. And by the time we really, you know, I'd always obsess about how do you bury somebody? Because we, as you, as this gets worse and worse and worse, you really, you know, you stop entertaining, you stop doing. People don't invite you, and you don't invite people, you know. And 
and you don't Thursday more because of Monday through Friday, the only time you have to catch up is on the weekend, and, and certainly that you get up going to Sunday school or church on Sunday is out of the question. That was my one morning sleep in, you know, Saturday and Sunday, my two morning sleep in. So I didn't know, didn't have any preacher to bury him, didn't have any friends to tear the casket out. And now I think, well, how do you, I was trying to think, well, see, there's one girl named such as Billy Joe, Betty Joe, or something up in the aunt, in fact. Which is, but I think, I don't know, we don't have any friends. And so I, how do you have a funeral when you don't have anybody to mourn? You know, you, you, you don't have any preacher to say anything, you don't have anybody to come. So I finally, I, I finally decided to just cremate her and that'd be okay, and I'd just keep her there until I would get things worked out. But that was, that's the kind of thing I thought about all the time, and I obsessed about it all the time. I went to that first meeting, I remember it really, really to this day. Very well, and I remember probably had 12 or 13 people, and they all were, and I was just so desperate. I was not going to argue about anything, you know, I'm not going to say, you know. And back in those days, they sure as hell didn't say, come to this meeting before you decide. I came in there and they said, you need to come to as many meetings as you can. They said, you need to read your literature every day. You need to, to ask God to pray in the morning. You need to thank God in the evening. You need to go to meetings and share your experience, strength, and hope. And you need to come to as many meetings as you can. And they gave me a schedule. And there were nine meetings a week in Montgomery at the time. And, and uh, so that's what I thought they meant. So the first three years now and on, I went to nine meetings a week. And uh, it worked. <laughs> because I would get out, you know, and when you get out of the meeting, that's an hour gone. So you're only 23 hours to the next one. And now and on, uh, they, they felt like God really wanted them to start at 8 and end at 9. And uh, that's exactly where they all were. And uh, so I did that. And uh, I remember that first meeting, and, and I remember people saying things. I remember one woman, and I think you've been in seven years, and until you get to eight years, you just shut up because more people have that seven-year itch or something. I remember her saying, I remember thinking she was, I didn't like her very much, and she seemed like a really mean lady. And, and she said, I've, and she answered, she says, well, Greg, I've been coming here seven years. You know, and all I can say is just keep coming back. And what I implied from that was if I kept coming for seven years, I'd be like her, and I didn't want to be like her. And you know, she didn't have anything that I wanted, you know. And I besides that, I wasn't sure when I got home with my uncle, I'd be some alive or dead. And, uh, and I, you know, I couldn't wait seven years. I mean, tell somebody to come back seven years is really kind of a dumb thing. But, but I remember the one, la- one lady named Nell, and she had this, this peace. You know, it wasn't she said that much. She had this peace and serenity about her. You could see it in her eyes. You know, she just had a kind of sparkle, you know, like an alcoholic eye sparkle. <laughs> But, but <laughs> yeah, exciting they are. Yeah, but uh, uh, but she had this something I really wanted, and I thought, well, you know, if if I want, I don't have any place else to go. First of all, I had no place else to go, and uh, so I thought, well, this is better than sitting at home and uh, trying to get insights one more time. And so uh, I had thought about this, and thought about this, and thought about this, and I just was. I had evaluated it everywhere I could, and it was totally hopeless. And I thought, I've done everything I can do over and over again. It's getting worse. I'm getting worse. I'm not going to make it. You know, We're not going to make it. And I can't think of another thing to do. And it's amazing to me. I never figured out how this program works. I still don't have any clue, you know, except that I know that um, I quit trying to figure out how it works. <laughs> and uh, and just kept coming to meetings. And uh, I kept it. And I kept going over those first three steps over and over and over again. Every morning I'd read the steps, I'd go over the serenity prayer, I'd say over and over again. And I'd say, I'm powerless, you know, I'm powerless, I'm powerless, I'm powerless. And I'd go home, I was, every time I'd go home, I didn't know if she was going to be alive or dead. She'd always be uh, something, you know. Uh, obviously she wasn't dead. And I couldn't even, when she would pass out, I couldn't even leave well enough alone. You know, back in those days, I'd come in and she'd be laying on the, sitting on the, laying on the floor in the front room, you know, passed out. And I'd, and, and I think I'd go over and shake her. Now, why I didn't leave her alone? I don't know. And I know people. Some people are really uh, just uh, mean. They're just mean, you know. And uh, and they're gonna beat you up or hit you or do something, no matter what you do, no matter how nice you are. But I have to say that as violent as things were, you know, uh, we were both violent at times. But if I had just changed my behavior, things would have gotten better. And I would never say that's the way it always is. But I think that it's the way it often is because. I would shake her and shake her until she woke up and I'd say, you're drunk. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm just resting. I'm very, very tired. And I said, no, you're not. I'm no damn fool. You're drunk. I know you're drunk. You're not going to lie to me. So she'd get up. We'd go sit at the dining room table. She'd get a bottle of vodka, sit there. We'd drink it. She'd drink the whole damn bottle. We were arguing whether she was drinking or not. We spent hours arguing whether she was drinking when she was sitting there drinking. And she'd be denying that she was drinking. And I would sit there and, 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 and so... I know how I got so undone. <laughs> I just 
kept trying to make reason, trying to reason this out. It just didn't make any sense. And I, I, and I kept trying to make sense out of something that didn't make any sense. And so, at any rate, I kept coming back to meetings, and I, I, I just said, well, I don't know how this works. I said, but I, I've come to realization now that, that God works through other people. Because that's how it works. I've never been able to see things the way they really are. And, uh, but I can, but I'm pretty judgmental, even to this day. So I can kind of see how, I don't know how I'm doing, but I can see how you're doing. You know? So, I would come to meetings, and I came to all these meetings, and I, uh, so I knew these people on and on and on, you know, and I'd watch people come in, and I'd think, they, you know, they're not, they're really, really sick, and they're really stupid, and they can't make it, you know. And they would make it, you know, after a while, they, you know, they'd be, stop crying, and they'd be happy, and I said, God, that's a miracle, you know, I never would have never given them a chance. And so I kept watching other people get well. And I think that's a matter of faith. I think the whole program is a spiritual program. I think that nothing in this program is of any value can we do by ourselves. We need, we need uh, a higher power. We need something great outside of ourselves to help us do these things. And I think God works through other people. I was astounded by the uh, forum a couple of years ago when they came out with a little article about how you can work the program without belief in a higher power. And I thought, well... All I can say about that is Al-Anon, the forum's not Al-Anon conference-approved literature, <laughs> which it is, of course. But I just, that's my, really my feelings, and I think that you have to go to meetings. I think I can go home and I can read this literature and read this literature. It all makes sense. It's like reading any of those self-help books and the thing. They all sound great, you know, and go to meetings, management courses, and they sound great. But you come back to work on Monday, everything turns back the way it was before. And I think that I had to keep going to meetings and keep going to meetings, and things started getting better. It was amazing. You know, I mean, I got rid of the anger, because I'd always been so angry, because I thought, my God, I've made so much money, and I'm broke. And uh, if I hadn't been married to this alcoholic, I said, I would, I would be so well off. You know, I would have, I wouldn't be driving this old damn Mercury. I'd be driving a really nice car, like my alcoholic's driving. <laughs> I don't want to pursue that one. But, uh, but I realized that... Uh, that I had not known, I had not seen anything wrong, and I knew that whatever the problem was, it was certainly not her problem. Her problem was she was drinking. My problem was I attracted to her, and I knew that if I hadn't married her, I would marry just another one, some other one, whenever you know. So that it was, I blamed her for all these years for making my life so unmanageable, and I realized that my life was pretty unmanageable. And I kept thinking, and I said, well, I, you know, people didn't think like, you know, I'd get back where we were before, and I started thinking, well, why the heck would that be? You know, back like it was before. You know, I think, well, when was I really, really at all that happy? <laughs> And it wasn't, you know, a child. I mean, I don't remember ever being really comfortable. So I thought, it's kind of one of those abstract things that you've done to meetings, and, you know, and, um, and we were at the World Service Conference once, and we were talking about adopting the AA's promises. And I spoke in favor of adopting the AA promises, and that there was a lot of people who didn't agree with that. And, uh, I still remember I was talking, and the delegate from New York jumped up, and she said, asked for the floor, and she said, there's a lot of people, and Al-Anon, who work the program, but their promises don't come true for their, in their lives. And do you say that that means that they're not working the program? I said, well, of course, that would, <laughs> of course that's what it means. <laughs> we just agitate her even more than she already was. <laughs> but um, I, I think that uh, I, I do read the, that other book, that, you know, that, that one. <laughs> and I really do think that it's... Because when you come in, I mean, I was thinking, what is it I really want? Because I understood the words. I understood serenity and, and all these things. But I didn't have never really experienced it. And so I was trying to get someplace where I had never been before. I wasn't trying to get back where I'd been and, and, and lost my way. I had never been there. And so I wasn't really sure what I was looking for. But I knew that I kept coming back. Things would get better. I knew that I couldn't do it by myself. And that's why I keep coming back. Because I've seen so many friends. They've come and gone and come and gone, and I run into them, and I don't want to be where they are, and I, I know that that's where I'll end up if I just don't keep doing. I don't know exactly how the program works, but I sure as heck know how it doesn't work. And I know that I, if I don't do what they used to tell me to do, if I get if I get comfortable, even if I'm uncomfortable where I am, uh, I'm not going to get any better. And I'm never going to stay the same. I'm either getting better or I'm getting worse all the time. And, I, and I'm so afraid to go back where I was before because I know I won't make it back again. Kind of like I finally quit smoking. I was either ran, either it was an absolutely fantastic shape where I'd run 20 miles a day and swim 3 miles a lap and run my bike 15 miles and spend an hour in the gym doing 1,000 push-ups, 500 sit-ups, that sort of thing, or else I'd smoke. 
And so the last time I quit smoking, I used that patch, and uh, and it was so hard. And I thought, well, I'll never, if I ever start smoking again, I'm never going to be able to stop, so I just won't. And uh, I kind of made the same decision by talking to Sarah Jane, who was talking about something on, uh, when we first got here, about priorities. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of, I'm always thinking about something. And when I first came in the program, I was trying to figure out detachment. I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I just could not for the life of you figure it out. But I kept coming to means. I kept working the steps the best I could, which may not have been very good, but it was the best I could. And I think God always gives you what you need when you need it. So, uh, And I finally, one day we come back from an expensive treatment center, maybe, I know, I got another 25000 We didn't have insurance by this time, of course. And and uh, she'd been been sober for a couple of weeks. I came back. She was just as drunk as she could be. And I remember feeling nothing but compassion for her and thinking that she's suffering more than I'll ever imagine. And I, for the first time, I wasn't angry. And I thought, my gosh, I got it. You know, this must be what it's like. It's really nice. It really feels good. And, I'm, and it was just a gift of the program. I think certain things you just come to you if you keep coming back and keep trying the best you can and you keep and you just give up. You know, because. For the longest time, I was just doing this. I was, I would submit to the moment, but I always, and when she would drink, I'd come to meetings. When she'd get sober, I'd come to meetings. I just kept coming to meetings because I knew that, that, that I was not prepared on my own to deal with the problems and I needed help from my friends in Al-Anon and I knew that's how God worked and I knew that I needed a higher power and I knew that I couldn't figure anything out and I just gave up and quit. It's amazing when you give up how many things fall into place, but, Today I still come, and like, like I said, I'm still hanging out at the assembly. But after this time, I promise I'm going to quit doing that. <laughs> well, I'll come out and hang out, but I'm not going to get any more of this agenda, drain more of this agenda, and things. Thanks for that. <laughs> and uh, and I really do. I know it saved my life. Uh, I I was kind of thinking, I wonder where I'd be if I hadn't come to Al-Anon. And of course, I could say, well, I'm dead. But I mean, really. I, I would have been better off dead if I hadn't found some help because I was so miserable. I mean, I just, I, I was, I can't, I can't even imagine how I felt so bad, you know. I, I was in really good shape physically. I mean, I'd go out and run a sub three marathon with my, with my dress suit on, you know, and, and street shoes, you know. But I, uh, but I think if you're going to be married to a real, real good alcoholic, you've got to stay in good shape. You just can't let yourself go. <laughs> I've kind of gotten, uh, gained a few pounds since I got married Anna. I've kind of gotten like a poncho, you know. I'm kind of worried about it. <laughs> we bought a lot of cookbooks, you know, and I, uh, and, and, and I, uh, I, uh, what really split us up was, uh, she basically almost started getting killed and went out and called, told the police at night that I, uh, was in the house, probably armed and wanted to kill cops, you know. And, you know, police don't have a sense of humor. At all, so I, I'm sleeping and I'm in bed and I kind of on the 19th of March 1993, I'm sleeping. All of a sudden, this, my house is swarmed. I have these 16 SWAT members come storming through my house and uh, and uh, and they asked me if I took a shot at my wife. And I said, "Well, this," and, and, and I I thought this is stupid. And I said, "Well, does she have a hole in her?" Because I really was frightened of the fact that. I'm an expert marksman. I even had the things in the police thing saying that, you know, I scored a hundred over and over again on that little firing range. And the guy says, why are you, uh, why are you keep coming out here? I says, I'm just practicing. This is before that. So they asked me if, she, if I took a shot at her and I, I was offended by the fact that they would thought that I would miss her, you know, and so I says, <laughs> and I said, well, she doesn't have a hole in her. So then she said, they said, well, we're taking you downtown. And they grabbed me and then, then my dog jumped on me. I had a great day and some of you knew my great day and he jumped on the police and then, um, stupid police anyway. And, <laughs> So the dog jumped on the police, so they they, they, they charged me with three counts of, counts of aggravated assault against a police officer, which is the same as, as rape or, or, or murder, and it's minimum 20 years each count. So they were trying to send me up the river, and I, Joel and I have not been together since that night. We shall not be together again either. <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of insanity, you know, and actually nothing was happening. I mean, I knew she was really kind of crazy, and, and she told me so. But I was doing okay, and I said, Jolene, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Everything's okay. You weren't about nothing. Well, I should have been worrying because she was thinking, you know, and then we talk about alcoholism and insanity and death, and we usually think it's, you know, we talk about the stories, all the crazy things we did, and when that's, we think that's funny and that's insanity, but that's not the insanity that we're talking about. We're talking about people who just plain are brain damaged. <laughs> and uh, so that's what happened in 1993, and, um, uh, 
uh, and I wiggled my way out of that one. And, uh, and I, since then I have been real, real careful around police. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's, and, uh, so I have, um, I have looked back at that and realized just how bad it can really get. You know, just, I, I, I used to think there was nothing I couldn't handle, but you can't handle really crazy people because they do really crazy things and they can, and they can hurt you. And, uh, so I have got a new perspective on, uh, on the terminal stages of alcoholism. Uh, I do go to meetings. We go on Monday night to the to the uh, first step meeting. I go on Wednesday night to step study meeting in Savannah. If you come to Savannah, we'd love to have you call. You can find me in the phone book. I'm in a dentist. I used to have two brothers who were dentists, so we were the first three people in the phone book. Then Philip had a better idea. Went back and getting a PhD in architecture. So now there's two. Now, so you look in the dentist, you'll see two. That's Andy. Is the other one. I live downtown. You come to Savannah, just give me a call, and we'll go to meet. I really appreciate you all being here for me because you saved my life. Not even more important than saving my life, you give me some happiness. I kind of have a good time now. You know, I enjoy it. I get in the morning and I, even on my bad day, and I want to have like a little bit of a bad day. It's not really a bad day like it used to. I mean, I never had days like I used to have, and I can stop in the middle of the day because I've learned i got to pay attention to my feelings. You know, I used to really piss people off and I said, no, don't, they say, well, you got to feel your feelings. you got to stop. And I tell Leah, some of you, oh, well, good imagination. I say, Leah, I said, I said, you've been saying that. I've known you now for like 12 years. And you've been suffering through the same feelings for 12 years. You're not getting any better. And I said, you shouldn't trust your feelings. They always lie to you. And uh, he got so mad. And everybody in Ireland got mad for saying that. Don't trust your feelings. Well, I lied to you. But my feelings always lied to me. Because they told me it was really hopeless. And I was gonna, I was miserable. And I was, couldn't get better. And the truth of the matter is, those feelings were wrong. You know, I mean, I those are my feelings. And those are my attitudes. But I had a choice to change my feelings. And change my behavior. And... That little first, that first sponsor I had was Zona. She was 85 years old, and I came in and said, you know, if you're a man, you get a man sponsor, and if you're female, you get a female sponsor. And unfortunately, there were no men. And I remember they told me maybe up in Prattville, which is 25 miles away, there used to be a man. And I could go up there and see if I could find one. And I went up and found him, and he wouldn't talk to me because he was really strange. And so I came back, and, <laughs> even by my standards. So I came back, and I finally asked Zona, and she said, well, I've been your sponsor all along. I said, I knew you needed a sponsor, and I knew it wasn't going to work out for you. I said, I'll, you know, I'm glad to be your sponsor. And, and I kept going with the serenity prayer. I said, well, you know, if I could get the wisdom, then I wouldn't have, you know, why wouldn't the order of this, if they turn the order around, then it would be real easy to get the first two. And she said, Greg, all you can change is your attitude. Said, I know you're really going to, you're having a hard time struggling with this, so I'm just going to help you out. All you can change is your attitude. And I think she's really right. I think that attitudes are absolutely more important than facts, that uh, no matter how bad things are, I can get better. And, uh, and, and I can get better no matter what happens. I can also change my behavior because if I keep doing the things I used to do, I'm not going to be able to change my attitude. So if I stay up all night fretting over something, I'm going to still be tired in the morning. And I'll tell you right now, I have a lot of peace of mind most of the time, but if I stayed up all night for a few nights in a row, I wouldn't be very serene today. And I, all the Alan on the world, you know, I still need to get eight hours sleep a night or at least six. <laughs> and today I'm, I, I have a whole new life. Uh, Ann and I uh, uh, don't fight that much. And she's always right. <laughs> I really pissed her off the other day because she's, I always am attracted to women who are much smarter than I am. So, And I'm, Joanne had a really, very high IQ, and so does Anna. So we were arguing about something, and I always attack you at a strong point. You know? so if, now if, you're, if, you're, if you're a cripple, I'm not going to call you a cripple. You know? But if you think you're real smart, I'm going to say something. I'm so she, we're fighting. I'm going down the steps, and I said, you know the trouble? You know the trouble? When we're, we're fighting, she says, no, why? She says, I'm so damn much smarter than you are. I remember his, ah! <laughs> <laughs> but all in all, it's a whole new experience, you know, and uh, it's really exciting. And I'm, without Alan on, I wouldn't be able to be here. I wouldn't be able to do this sort of thing. If I was alive, I'd be miserable someplace, and, uh, and I'm not. I'm here, and I'm really grateful. And I've been grateful for years now. And I appreciate you all being here, and I, I can't say I appreciate it. I want to thank the committee for inviting me. <laughs> we're coming up here, and I and I and I and it says they called and asked if we did a little skit, and I said, well, I can always do a you know ugly guy who can't sing his you know stupid song. I can I can take a shot at that, but I said I don't have to do anything. I have to get back and get to finish up with the agenda for the assembly and that sort of thing. But this weekend I'm just going to relax. And I got here and I got that little note and said, please see me, Terry. And I thought, well, how important can it be? You know, and I came and we listened, sat down, got here to the last minute, listened to Jim. And I thought, wow, it's a, you know. 
That's a wonderful talk, Jim. Wonderful talk. I said, what a spiritual talk. I said, I'm so glad I don't have to follow something like that. <laughs> and you address so well. You address well enough to be an AA speaker. <laughs> But I, uh, you know, and, and I, I remember saying, I'm just so glad I don't have to do anything. I can just come here and relax. And then she says, so-and-so fell and so-and-so can't be here. And what do you do the Sunday morning? I thought, and I thought, I remember thinking, oh, no. And I'm thinking, they always say you, you can't say no. And I was, thinking, are there any, I was thinking, are there addendums to that? <laughs> and I finally said, well, probably, um, probably I should just go ahead and do that. He had planned to go over to the little chapel, you know, for church services this morning because uh, Jim Rush, who's the superintendent here, married us. And so he came by the other day, six Saturday morning, and I said, well, gonna, we said, well, you're going to be there. And he says, no, I'm going to Hilton, and I won't be it. I won't be doing services this weekend. So I said, well, I guess this is all working out just the way it's supposed to work out. So I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and I love you all. <laughs>